Today's episode of Intermission is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Intermission. Uh, Today, I am with uh, Caden Mark Gardner, and we're here to talk about Todd Haynes' film, uh, Safe. Um, Hello, I am Caden Mark Gardner. I am a freelance uh, writer from upstate New York. I've written for Dig Boston, Reverse Shot, Los Angeles Review of Books, Mubi, and other places, and uh, I'm very happy that Michael invited me to talk about Safe. Again, we're still kind of finding our, uh, we still have our sea legs with this podcast. First episode was uh, with Ryan Swen talking about mm-hmm. two English girls, and yeah, so it's 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 fluid. Let's put it that way. But this is an art house podcast that is, or excuse me, a podcast focusing on art house, foreign films, experimental films. Yes, yeah, safe. I could see some people maybe arguing for <laughs> as as uh, you know being on the fringe of art house at this point. Uh, <laughs> But uh, we'll get into that a little bit. Yeah. First, I want to say uh, thank you to our uh, perpetual sponsor, uh, Mubi, which has uh, 30 films for 30 days. Mubi is a wonderful service uh, that these days uh, has such a spectrum of filmmaking that, you know, they are able to have not only a trauma retrospective, but... um, you know, the entirety of Wing Bing's Dead Souls and uh, now a Godard uh, series, which today's film is uh, Le Guy Savoie. Uh, I'm deeply sorry about my French pronunciation, <laughs> but uh, the description of Le Guy Savoie is uh, between 1960 and 1969, Godard made 17 features in a great burst of radical creativity. Le Guy Sauvoir, his final film in the 60s, is a work of pared-down invention and subversive pop montage in which two beguiling icons of the new wave, Jean-Pierre Léon, who we talked about in, uh, when we talked about Two English Girls, and uh, Juliette Berthaud, take center stage. And if you would like to try a free trial of Mubi, go to uh, www dot movie.com slash film stage. And uh, now we can get into our main review, which, uh, as I mentioned, is about um, is about uh, Todd Haynes safe. Uh, and so, Caden, uh, you you've written about this film kind of a few times. So once in in body talk, mm-hmm. uh, you're your kind of uh, ongoing dialogue with uh, Will McClay. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, you wrote about Dark Waters, actually, for Reverse Shot last year as well. Yep. So, yes. 
so and and you have also been one of the the great crusaders for this film uh, <laughs> yeah. online so why did you want to talk about it today and what is your personal relationship with it i'm like all, always down to talk about safe like <laughs> I've been wanting to really write and expand on a lot of my ideas, even from when I discussed it with Willow for Body Talk, because we were just talking more about one type of context of the sort of body horror aspects to this movie. But I'm always down to talk about it, because I think it is one of the richest sort of the richest American films for the last like 30, 25 years, in my opinion. And there's a lot of ways to sort of talk about it and look at it as far as what it is representing. Cause it is very rich in various different ways. As far as what my relationship with safe I actually, it was actually something, even as a young Tan Hayden's fan, I was not really aware of. I was more of the generation that knew of Far From Heaven and Velvet Goldmine. But I actually had a college professor who was insisting to me that the film you need to watch is Safe by Todd Haynes. But at that time, and this was like the early 2010s, Safe was actually pretty hard to actually find, at least for me growing up in upstate New York and going to a small liberal arts school in upstate New York. Sure. So at the time, it was almost, or for a time, it was at least as hard for me to find as, say, Superstar the Karen Carpenter's story. And in finding it, I found a YouTube rip one, <laughs> one night and just watched it really, really, really late in, in bed on my laptop. And that's sort of where sort of my connection and, and obsession with it began, because it was, while not an outright genre movie, definitely had elements of genre, but also had a lot of moments of perplexion and just feeling like there was some something that was connecting me to uh, Julianne Moore's character, Carol White. Now, I'm obviously... I'm obviously open about the fact that I am trans and, and my trans identity. And we did discuss safe in the context of body horror, feeling like a very good place to find trans allegory. And I would say to some degree, safe does fit that as far as being about how there is some disconnect between mind and body. And I think some to that degree, while uh, Carol White's what is her predic predicament in the film is an open question that the film doesn't doesn't answer. It actually does become a very strong allegory for me, at least, about the elusiveness of identity, whether it's gender identity or gender dysphoria or just body dysphoria, which I would say Carol White absolutely has body dysphoria in this movie. So that had sort of took me on sort of an obsession with this movie, but I also am also obsessed with it in a million different very <laughs> ways, which we can talk about for the rest of this podcast. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to just to extend that to Haynes a little bit. Is this the Haynes film that you have the largest connection with them? Yeah, I would say it has quite shockingly moved to the top for me because I would say initially, like, I was transfixed by this movie, but I wouldn't say it was the sort of instant, the instant sort of invigorating masterpiece of, say, watching Carol for the first time or even Superstar for the first time. Yeah. But yet I, there are mo- there was a time in my life when I was deeply depressed and I remember just watching the movie numerous times in a day because there was just something I found so rich in sort of the details of its time, its place, its framing, its colors. And I also want to know, when I watched the YouTube rip, the colors were just so degraded (laughs) on the YouTube rip. And for a while, even the original DVDs and the prints that were going around art houses were were in some degraded colors that... Uh, the Criterion restoration has sort of revealed to be that this movie is a lot paler than you were led to believe and a lot greener <laughs> than you were led to believe. So, uh, yeah, so I have grown over time sort of really sort of appreciating this work a lot more because it does feel that it was sort of the essential film for Todd Haynes to go on to make movies about sort of the American story, stories about women, stories about... Or women in houses, as Todd Haynes says. (laughs) Yes, people in houses, people on couches, people's relationships to corporations. And yeah, it it just feels like an essential component for anyone who likes Todd Haynes movies needs to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 fascinating considering the context. I, I mean, when you brought this movie to me, you, you spoke specifically about how it was a, you know, it was kind of seen, supposed to be seen as a corrective or an antidote to, you know, the self-help gurus and the snake oil salesmen of the of the 80s you, you had specifically off mic mentioned someone like Louise Hayes who was uh one of the uh one of the giants of kind of that um yeah. industry yeah I guess industry is the word um it, it, it is an industry and um something again like this movie is actually set in the 80s while this movie was seven I believe yeah yeah while this movie was made in 1995 Obviously, so there's some 80s carryover into the 90s. It is absolutely 80s, not just because of the whole fact that AIDS does exist in this movie, even though yeah. AIDS also exists as allegory as well. The 80s are notable for the fact that it was Reagan's America. And in Reagan's America, there was the fact that he deregulated a lot of media. And the fact was that infomercials exploded. And that sort of gave rise to, say, the infomercials that Carol sees on the television that introduces her to Renwood in the first place. And also, in real life, uh, Louise Hay uh, was able to get such a big audience because while AIDS was happening, she found that essentially 
the fact was that the government and other institutions, whether it was in public health and elsewhere, were ignoring AIDS patients. She sort of targeted them as far as pushing her belief in affirmations. Um, to give context of who she was, <clears throat> she was a woman who later in life, in her 50s, decided to tell her story as far as being an abuse survivor who survived cerv cervical cancer because she focused her life in positive thinking and not medicine. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean to react that way, but yeah, it is. It is familiar. It, it it is completely shocking. And again, she was she would say these things that would just sound ridiculous. Like people would just mention she, they would have pain in their hips, and she would somehow connect it to her to that person having an issue with their father or something like that. Mm -hmm. But she was. But when you would listen to her, she was so charismatic and so upbeat. Because again, positive thinking, affirmations. You're not going to walk away from somebody with a smile on their face. So when you have that warm presence as somebody, like say a gay man who has spent most of their life having people turn their backs on them, ridicule them for their choices in life, and living their life authentically and to then have people turning their backs when say they test HIV positive, you get drawn to somebody like Louise Hay. And she really had her real breakout with the fact that she opened her arms to gay men and uh, people who were HIV positive. And up until her death in 2017, I would say she remains a polarizing figure because she does still have some people who will defend her and say she didn't turn her back on us like everyone else did or that this that she helped me. But I would say that her approach to AIDS and even any other public health issue that she often had to hear from people who sought her help was so anti-science. And you can see why somebody like Todd Haynes and many people who were in the more activist part of gay rights and, and Haynes was part of ACT UP as well, wasn't he? Yep, he was part of ACT UP. And when you think of the fact that Louise Hay did not want people to be victims and did not want the doom and gloom, ACT UP, their, their sort of rallying cry is silence equals death. S yeah. Silence equals death. So you can see the fact that these people are on completely different paths and ways of thinking. They want to act up, wants to confront and address public health problems. They don't want to be marginalized. They want to be treated as equals, equals by society and by institutions. But Louise Hay and in this movie, for example, people in Renwood want you to look inward and want you to be positive because the negativity and self-doubt will only make you worse in their eyes. Because, uh, again, when listening to any of Louise Hay's sort of talks or whatever, 
it seems she gets the only time she gets angry is at the very fret of negativity that that is more ruinous to a person than any affliction or health issue. It's quite fascinating. It, it, even to speak directly to AIDS' relationship with this movie, it, it's kind of fascinating because uh, you, you already you already said how it's hey uh, hey is directly invoked in the film and, and things like Redwood, uh, but it's also indirectly discussed like early yeah. on uh carol's having a discussion with a a friend in the neighborhood and they're talking about uh how, how a relative of hers passed and they're speaking about it cryptically in a way that mm-hmm. it seems very clear they're talking about aids and they're yes. kind of yes. skirting around sexuality or you have the uh, not just to speak of aids but to speak of that reagan era Quality. You also have that bizarre scene where Rory is—it's uh, I, I, a book report or something—but he's talking essentially <laughs> about the, you know, LA gangs and you know these pretty horrifying stereotypes that LA are nonetheless the like, capital of America. Yes, I would have loved to have been his teacher if he ever gave <laughs> that a presentation. Oh my God, what a scene! Yeah, and but then it's you know obviously then directly discussed in relation mm-hmm. to the he's not the director but he's you know the person who came up with uh, Renwood I, b- I believe uh, in terms of you know and he directly says that he did have AIDS and and found um, yeah and found the cure but I I think what what is as someone who is only familiar with this film or not only familiar like this is this is something that i knew was one of the great films of the 90s it's something i knew you know was kind of haynes uh it's not necessarily mainstream breakthrough because you know poison and superstar were certainly in certain circles and uh you know he haynes was definitely connected to new queer cinema as i understand you know whether that was super productive in terms of, and whether it was actually progressive in terms of how he was related to those things, you know, might be a different conversation. But I do get the sense that what really surprised me about Safe was was two things. One was that it is completely committed to its constructed aesthetic. Like it's not it's not prickly, but it from the from the framing, which is a lot of a lot of pulled back wide shots and the editing, which does a lot of, um, you know, I, I, either it does sharp cuts or a fade to black that that neither of those really give resolution to the mm-hmm. scenes like this. Mm-hmm. This is a film that over and over, like not only pushes forth that like hypnagogic feel, but also like really it doesn't really do aesthetic flourishes for for the most part, even yeah. in those moments. Like it's a fugue state, but it's it's only recognized in a fugue state or it's a fugue state, but it is uh, experienced presently. Yeah. So so it was really it was really fascinating to me how committed this was. And the other thing was I feel like numbness is constantly the language that's used in this. And like very early on, I'm like, no, it's not numbness at all. <laughs> it's feeling everything all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and so 
I, I guess the uh, maybe the beginning way to talk about this is, you know, you've talked about it in relation to body horror in part, but it seems it seems as much interested in the relationships of those uh, I, part of my metaphor here, the external structures that she's in and those institutions to her own condition. Like, like this is a movie that I was surprised and Den- Dennis Lim brought this up in his criterion uh, essay yeah. is like, this is surprisingly a really good film about the period. Like a like yeah. character study almost feels uh, it's, it's not inaccurate, but it feels uh, reductive to what Haynes is, is trying to achieve here. Yeah, as far as their aesthetics, it's kind of fascinating to kind of show the fact that Carol has no real control over her surroundings. It, the, the sort of the biggest sort of signifier that something is about to happen in this movie is the whole black couch image. <laughs> yes. That something goes wrong, and as soon as that black couch enters... It really goes downhill for Carol. And you sort of see her on the edge of scenes, not really having control, but also not really asserting herself at the same time. And it is kind of funny to sort of see the sort of housewife rebranded in the 80s context. Because when we think of housewives and even sort of the sort of domestic housewife of the 20th century. We think of the post-war 1950s. That archetype, yeah. That that archetype. But, you know, Carol is almost to the point of repression that it almost seems accurate that a woman of, that she, a woman of the 80s, is still stuck in these old archetypes herself, sure. in a way. She sort of represents an archetype that even for the 1980s she feels completely out of time in a way she doesn't really have agency you might confuse her more with her far from heaven character which is more the 1950s archetype that this woman is somehow untouched by the social changes such as second wave feminism but also at the same time, her biography is very vague. We really don't know where she came from. She, in a brief sort of letter, letter that she writes almost to herself, she's sort of, the narration has her noting that she's from Texas. She makes a phone call to her mother, but that's really it as far as you who get she that, is. You get that interesting scene where she is doing an exercise on the ground uh, where, you know, a woman is describing vividly a memory that she had. And then Carol has to describe a room for her ch- from her childhood. And she really, really struggles to do so in kind of a kind of a heartbreaking way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, it just feels like she's sort of pulled to the side almost physically in a lot of spaces that she really has no real relationships with spaces like the only time I can really sort of clock her really having any connection is actually to the garden around her house. Mm. We see like in earlier in the movie and it's kind of fascinating because she's not in a dress. She's in work pants and she actually looks her most comfortable 
and oh. something that is really sort of androgynous wearing pants like even for somebody like carol who does prefer to sort of play the role of supportive wife she still likes to do be in her garden and do work pants and she sort of and in that sort of scene in the house she does want to assert what she wants to do but then the black couch happens and then everything falls apart after that but uh she she yes her sort of lack of agency and sort of elusive sort of search sort of becomes a part of the movie it is almost like she does want to have sort of an influencing force in a way and that isn't really her husband he's (laughs) he's more of a schlub than some sort of dominant presence but you know he's nice and does want to support her and does seem kind even though their marriage is not going as going in the direction that he thought it would uh we see sort of the friend who talks about having a fruit diet yeah, Linda, because that, that, that is her only way to cope with her brother's death is to have her get rid of the toxins from her body after dealing with and grieving over the fact that somebody who she loved died of a virus. And what I note is that Linda has this really 80s specific perm. <laughs> and care sure. and and after and it wasn't I don't believe it was immediately the scene after talking to Linda but not far after it seems that Carol on impulse wants to be like Linda and goes to the hairdressers to get a perm and it ends badly <laughs> and cuz she gets a nosebleed which yeah. then leads her to believe am I being chemically exposed to toxins and again just sort of the fact that she has no direction or really any agency. She just prefers to be influenced, and it just makes sense in a way to sort of portray her as somebody who just wants to have a sort of structure and sort of uh, mindset and program to follow by going to Renwood in that way. So you think that, uh, see, I I didn't, I'm not sure what I specifically implied in relation to her spontaneous perm, but I didn't see it as her miming Linda. But as you're talking about a routine that, that does... That does make sense. It, it makes sense to me. I, I almost saw it I, in a way that it could kind of underline the lie of the entire movie that she yeah. found a certain catharsis in this perm, which is, you know, <laughs> such a chemical, a chemical, uh, not, not tool, but a chemical um, process. <laughs> like, yeah. And honestly, uh, even in just going back to the body talk discussion, I also sure. saw that scene as also sort of a moment of dysphoria that her trying to dip into femininity that is on her own sort of definition and trying to reconfigure her identity because she doesn't because she really feels not served or unfulfilled in all other directions the moment of sort of having that done to her has her body rejected that's also another time another reading i have of that scene i've seen this movie enough times that i have multiple (laughs) reads of a scene it's not it's not not really fit a fixed 
a lot of the times. <laughs> well, that subsequent scene, too, is is such a disruption as well. And I think that could speak more to what you're talking about in terms of the femininity, where it's, you know, her and her husband in the room. He compliments her perm and says it's it's sexy uh, as he's kind of stomping around the room or, or not stomping around the room. But, you know, he's. It seems like he's trying to seduce her in a really terrible way, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it leads to her just kind of thumbing through a magazine and, you know, then he gets that that line. Nobody has a fucking headache every night of the fucking week, <laughs> which is which, you know, to bring it back to some of those social structures of the time. Even the way that, for instance, the psychiatrist is first mentioned mm-hmm. with, with the doctor, like it's still such a taboo thing, which is again weird. Like it, it, it like I could I could bring up another a, a number of comparisons to Mad Men, but uh, mm-hmm. it couldn't I couldn't help but think in, in some ways about Betty's particular relationship with, oh, with of therapist. And, uh, you know, there's obviously some more than base similarities between Betty and and Carol, but it's nonetheless uh, it's nonetheless fascinating to me. Uh, Again, this film, as you're saying, it it doesn't lend itself to any easy or or fixed to take your word, fixed readings like I even find I, I, I I'm going back and forth on whether, or I shouldn't say I'm going back and forth, because Haynes has said expressly that he meant this to be pessimistic. He meant it to have cynicism about this. But if you read some of the scenes directly, there are moments where Carol does truly seem to be in a better place, which is, is not to say that it's advocating for how she's doing such. But I... I I think that's partly just Haynes. Haynes is almost unable to not be an empathetic director. <laughs> like that's yeah. a, that's just a, a standard thing for him. But yeah, I think he want he legitimately wants her to get better. I think he's also playing on a lot of genre tropes and expectations regarding disease films and sort of more the normal Hollywood movie. Yeah, <clears throat> because Renwood is. Basically, it's straight out of a brochure. It's multicultural. It's <laughs> led by a gay man with AIDS. Sure. It's it feels like a, a person of color is the second person you see like you. Yeah. Like, yeah. And uh, people of color for the rest of the movie are in sort of service industry. Roles. Absolutely. Yeah. So Cleaner, yeah. You just sense more egalitarian and you see nice people like, say, uh, James LaGrosse's role, Jessica Harper. It's always nice to see her. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think he's also showing that there is some sort of splinters around. Carol does seem to be focused on the fact that she wants to get better, even though she is increasingly looking more worse for wear than really anybody else at Renwood. Yeah, and I would agree. There's a lot of empathy sort of made towards her. And, oh man, I think about that scene uh, with Claire, one of the directors. It's at night. Yeah. And anyone who has seen Dark Waters, like, I feel like only people 
in my position as critics have seen it. Uh, but there is this sort of quote where Claire talks about how she lived near a chemical factory that had spillage. Yes. And that exposed her. And I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot about how, how the fact that's that's the prequel. That's the prequel to Dark Waters. Oh, my God. And how she had this sort of positive outlook still. It was about self-love. And it's said with such conviction because the Claire and Peter in the movie are such charismatic figures. And I would say what Haynes does so effectively is even though in their words, enough is said to have some skepticism as an audience member, there are still moments where you can tell why somebody like Carol feels so drawn to them and why everyone around her feels so drawn to them. Yeah. And I feel like sort of reading, reading the film in the vacuum, especially on a script level, you can kind of sort of see where is this, is this so pessimistic? (laughs) But then you sort of see how Carol is looking physically and you're like, well, we're not going to get this result in her case. If the mission was to have her get better, well, the mission failed. (laughs) But again, um, I think the movie does a really effective job, essentially quoting verbatim, like, again, the sort of Louis Hay, Marion Williamson type of mindset on positive affirmations and wellness and self-love so well. And and I think sort of presenting that sort of shows how on sort of a person to person level that even in the analog age, this message was coming through and really drawing people in such as Carol. Mm -hmm. Maybe he did too effective of a job because he literally does verbatim lift directly from Louis A. <laughs> affirmations. But I remember reading and hearing sort of what the reaction was at the time, because this was a Sundance movie. Yeah. And um, at that time, like new queer cinema was still something considered more in your face like this was on the same Sundance slate as the Dune Generation, for example. Okay. A great Iraqi film. Yes. So you sort of see already that Tom Haynes is is going more for 80s new wave as opposed to Greg Iraqi's punk rock, for example. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it kind of you can kind of see how people anticipating the follow-up from the director of Poison might have been a little befuddled. (laughs) Again, with the fact that there is, again, genre expectations of both the disease movie and just conventional Hollywood narrative to have this be the ending. Supposedly, like, Julianne Moore's agent called her and it's like, people left. People left the screening. (laughs) People left. And she's like, really? And Tyler's like, yeah, it seems that it became more of a film that lingered for people. Sure. And that and it's hard to imagine kind of a film like that dealing with the whole social media age, because that sort of became sort of a a natural return point for a lot of critics in 1995. But again, we sort of joke about the whole issues of Sundance hype. Meanwhile, 
I would say one of the best movies to ever premiere at Sundance had like the worst initial <laughs> release pattern and it still managed to survive and endure. That's kind sure. of strange, but yeah, as far as, um, <clears throat> as far as the pessimism in the movie, I feel like, um, again, going back to Claire, you sort of see how you sort of see a sort of sliding doors of what would dark waters be if all the characters who were affected by DuPont just had more positive thinking and affirmations and not class action lawsuits about the fact they all got cancer. They needed uh, a new age commune. <laughs> yes, they, they needed that. And because I sort of feel like um, and again, people thought Haynes went normie on dark waters. I think him making a sort of a sort of Frank Capra-esque procedural and almost patriotic type of movie about fighting the good fight does fit in with his, again, act up background and sort of wanting accountability and justice for a wrong by corporate America and institutions that failed people. That makes sense to me as far as why that movie exists. And it also makes sense to me why he might have pessimism about the whole Renwood setup, even though he quite convincingly, maybe too convincingly presents their case at times. Although again, at also at times, they also show Peter sort of breaking and losing sure. it at people a lot of the time. I mean, I don't mean to suggest they're not uh, abusive in their in their <laughs> methods, but I, I think that I think that, you know your your mention of uh, the Doom Generation and our Iraqi, uh, you know, taking a more punk rock approach and uh, thinking about in relation to uh, Dark Waters, which some people have called Square, but then you know, it it is unusual that this film doesn't doesn't even bring like the classical art house anarchy that you would expect even from its its predecessors like like yeah. Belle de Jour like Jean Dielman like those films do break at some point like <clears throat> that yeah. that is so it is and and even Velvet Goldmine is in fact starts at that anarchy and it is yeah. meant to you know entirely invert any expectations uh, <clears throat> about those figures. So it I think that is what ultimately is so strange to me about Safe because you are right it, it is very well read and cynical and yes understanding of of why people would be drawn to this and how this would affect them, but. It gives no no conventional catharsis, even in the way, you know, of Antonioni, <laughs> Antonioni or, or, you know, like in that subtle ennui way, which is just fascinating to me. Like, you're right. It is very it is very much like playing with the disease of the weak things and, you know, genre films. But um it's it's just very strange to me that there really is no moment of you know a breaking point a breaking points like ten minutes into the movie as you said that couch <laughs> yeah and um, 
I also think the moment where she's like, I am so sick, I don't know where I am, and then the movie just goes to static on the television. Yes. That almost that almost feels like a break because you can sort of see a bifurcation. It becomes something is wrong with me. Now I must figure out what is wrong with me and go from there. But of course, again, this film still sort of ends on sort of a question mark. Well, not sort, it does. Although Carol is certain that the way out is to say, I love you. Sure. But critics apparently saw that almost universally optimistic in terms (laughs) of main reviews, which is a choice. (laughs) Very much a choice. And again, that goes back to Claire because she's basically following what Claire told her to do. Yes. And again, said in such a gentle empathetic way but also at the same time a lot of sort of yarn spinning as sort of again just seducing people in words as far as it sounds good it must be true type of sort of new age positive thinking but yeah the sort of there is no anarchy here because again this is about a woman who is there's almost no identity to revolt against because she there there is something almost blank about her in a way that doesn't feel as a choice but that she just feels so disassociated and so tenuous with all of her relationships and her relationships to spaces and people And again, sort of bringing it back to sort of the questions about gender and sort of body dysphoria that she goes through. She's not outright rejecting femininity or anything like that, but it just seems to be her searching but never really finding words that fit and that she connects with. She even tells Peter, I'm just learning the words. I'm still learning the words. She wants to so badly fit in with some place and something, but her, she sort of just feels almost floating, even just sort of the way her voice just feels feels in such an upspeak that it's almost disconnected from her body itself. It's just really fascinating. There's some sort of airiness where she almost doesn't feel like a person, but she absolutely is one because her body is absolutely breaking down in ways that feel so un- unimaginable. But yeah, the sort of lack of a genuine catharsis due to the fact that she doesn't really have anything that she oversees or has control over. Sure. It really does flip on that. And uh, you bring up Jean Dielman, and obviously, like, Haynes has been very vocal about his love of Chantel Ackerman and also that this movie was influenced. And you can sort of tell with the sort of spatial relationships and also a shot of uh, Carol drinking her favorite beverage, milk. Just Even like though John she's Hayes. allergic to it later. Yes. <laughs> But just like uh, Jean Dielman, um, Jean Dielman drinks milk, but also Jean Dielman has a type of 
control in the fact that she has rituals. She has duties. Yeah. Meanwhile, all around her, Carol has her Mexican maid. She has workers for hire who are doing a lot of the household work, but she's not doing anything. And you kind of feel like that lack of pull and sort of lack of agency has resulted in her feeling impersonal to a lot of her surroundings, that there are no sort of histories that she can be drawn to. And again, sort of speaking to my experience as a trans person, I have to say the sort of feelings of not being able to act out on something or even feel like your inadequacies and lack of connections with spaces and sort of accustomed sort of expectations for your gender, that does speak a lot to my experiences. Mm. And the sort of feelings that <clears throat> Carol has in wearing wearing something that she doesn't want to wear because you can sort of tell by her posture and being in places she doesn't want to be, not being able to have affinities for things that other people around her seem to, and especially in relation to their gender. It just does sometimes feel like she is going through a type of sort of dysphoria that is its own sort of form of chaos. And again, this film is about chaos, but it's more of an individual than, say, a sort of general human universal event. Yeah. And and sort of then, and this especially becomes the case at Renwood, that honest is on you. But how can you fix that when you don't know the words and when you do not know, know the answers because the answers are not right in front of you necessarily? <clears throat> It seems yeah. there's certainly a suggestion, too, that she doesn't belong in Renwood either. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, but I, I think you're you're bringing me to something that I, I was thinking about a little bit, but couldn't find the words for, um, <laughs> which is like I, I feel like that first half is is so much in dialogue with heteronormativity and yeah. these certain gendered notions and. So do you see that second half specifically in dialogue with queerness then or, or like a, a J an a gender quality then in that way? Or do you kind of see both halves uh, in similar conversations, for lack of a better word? She does become a little more a gender and desexualized in a way because she goes from wearing clothing. Yeah. Clothing, especially she wears a lot of. She does sometimes wear skirts, and that is often when her husband is around at Renwood. But oh, yeah. she she does prefer to sort of wear sort of sweats and things that are, again, no frills. But again, Renwood is sort of pushing to look at the self and sort of look in sort of look inward. However, she does seem to be the only real person at Renwood who is dressing this way at the same time. It seems that everyone else is pretty much wearing a lot of their clothing that does for the most part, most of them do have, do have colors and jeans that sort of pop off and look like clothes people would just wear in regular life. But you know, uh, sort of queerness as far as 
say, be feeling out of step, feeling not so much marginalized, although people <clears throat> people at Renwood are do include people in marginalized groups, but on the margins of still feeling like she cannot really assert herself or really be introspective because there still seems to be a problem that she is not really, really asking herself head on. And no one really seems to be asking her. And again, you have that, unfortunately, quite terrible uh, interaction with the psychologist or psychiatrist or or whatever. Sure. But, and, you know, like those things, unfortunately, do cause people to never return, even though they sure. probably do need to get that type of treatment. And um, without outing my, my therapist, like he's also, in addition to being a therapist, is a healer of new age stuff, but he is a very discernible person and he often does call out people who he thinks are quacks and also thinks mm. are quacks within trans health a lot of the time. And he once told me, Silence equals death, but action equals life. Hmm. And that goes back to his work in AIDS activism as well. So I think that as far as Carol finding her place in finding her place does still feel like a search that she might not be able to fully reach due to the severity of her condition. The sort of queerness you can read on her is the fact that there does seem to be something that she is not acting out on that might be so deeply repressed that might take her years to sort of unravel. It's pretty and, radical that trauma, for instance, is never a word used, you know, given mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's... Uh, it doesn't dis- diminish it, but trauma is very much a... You know, it's a maybe not a buzzword, but it's something that comes up repeatedly. So yeah, it's fascinating that this film almost never points in that direction. Yeah. And um, and I think they and I think there is something very purposeful about the fact that they try to par down as much as her character biography as they possibly can sort of indicate there is something going on. As far as what happened in her life, yes, we hear her mother, but what about her father or something like that? And it's it is fascinating because I think trauma, as far as just in sort of general speak, has sort of proliferated over time. Maybe that was not the case in the 80s. And maybe that is something that the film is just simply reflecting on. Sure. Yeah, sort of Carol's repression almost seems to be by choice because there doesn't seem to be something that was such a cataclysmic event that she is hiding from from others necessarily. Like her husband never questions who did I marry as far as as far as you're you've been living a lie with me or anything like that. He's more just flustered by the fact that she has this condition and there doesn't seem to be an easy answer to it. But he never feels betrayed by her or anything like that. I feel like a lesser movie would have a confrontation with the husband. It's like, who are you? Or something like that. Sure. Because I feel like 
perhaps people do find this character to be almost too much of a void, to be almost too empty of a vessel to really wrestle with. You know, I would say Haynes critics often find him almost too overly clinical, that often it feels like you are clearly seeing the work of an intelligent person, but perhaps not as emotionally satisfying as other directors. But that's, that's always fascinating to me because I, I feel like so many, you know, he he's very careful about constructing the milieus for his characters, mm-hmm. but I never feel like his characters are archetypes or anything. I, I feel like they're always working within those structures and being present and, and being a, a self that has to work around those mm-hmm. Guidelines, I guess. Yeah, there does seem to always be, there might be a dialogue with uh, archetypes that his characters have, and often rebelling against those archetypes. Sure. Either slyly or obliquely or whatever. But I find the fact that Carol has a kind of repression to her to be completely compelling as far as that that can happen to people. People can just be in such denial that even their bodies completely falling apart and breaking down, they will have a kind of optimism or belief that what they are doing is fine, that they can live like this. Now, sometimes in other cases, you can be like me and find a life of repression completely untenable. I think the other thing, too, that can kind of be linked to the mental illness conversation is how this relates to wellness culture, as it's kind of known today. You know, things like self-care and things that kind of fall into that category. Um, Parallels, like, you know, aren't always perfect, as this is a film from the 90s, but there is some very striking comparisons that can be made, like you were talking about Hay and her philosophies and how those intersect with some of the ways wellness culture and self-culture or excuse me, self-care, has become its own industry. I think safe especially is, you know, it's strange because on one hand, it isn't technology or computers or that might be used if this was transposed to a different time period. But it is, you know, it's things like car exhaust and aerosol cans and pollution and all these sources. I mean, you've spoken a little bit about where you, well, I guess you could say, Brenwood, specifically, you've talked about and how that relates to some of these modern interpretations of wellness culture. What are your feelings on SAFE in relation to that? On wellness culture, like, it does come from a place of sort of logical concern and also the fact that the environmental illness in the film does come from a real sort of phenomenon and issue with the fact that everyday products, whether where they were manufactured or the fact that many people bought these products or people who worked in office buildings that had asbestos have been exposed to chemicals that pretty much have altered their lives. But I'm sure we're going to find out some real fun things about cell phones effects within the next decade. (laughs) And, um, and, uh, and yeah, And not to bring it back to dark waters, but yeah, and it kind of does feel like Haynes kind of answers that question of the fact that he was too perhaps pessimistic 
<clears throat> about sort of the concerns of people who were chemically sensitive or people with environmental illness. It seems clear to me that he does, he is, if anything, very sort of righteously angry and indignant about how systems have failed and how systems were not accountable for their actions, whether it be big business or governments. And I think as far as wellness culture, they turned a public health failing into a market inefficiency that they would exploit. And whether that's Louise Hay or some other guru who it seems that with every other answer, it's like, how about you buy my book to find out? It seems that people are exploiting something that does seem to be a failure on some levels of places that we've been told have our best interests at heart when they don't. And it seems that sort of this film is sort of showing is how a person can go down a path and be pretty much influenced. And it just seems that this is just an everyday sort of occurrence that is just going to be how everyone is going to live the rest of their lives because this is just this is just sort of the byproduct of American capitalism, of how Reagan era America is all about deregulating and just letting people sell their products will ignore it. People are making money. People are feeling like they're getting helped. So why should we intrude, etc.? And that marginalized groups or people who are on the margins are just more susceptible because just by the history in America about our health systems, whether it's uninsured or people who have been ostracized or discriminated against, they just feel like they have no other way, way to help themselves other than to turn to these places like Renwood or any sort of real life version of Renwood. I think it's I think it's interesting that if I try to think of analogs for safe in this moment, so there's a few like different ways that I'd come at this. I mean, one is one is unsane, which is something I revisited recently, uh, mm-hmm. or, or side effects for that matter. But um, the other is you know it's it's interesting that the environments like Renwood are are not really diplomatically portrayed these days like they're 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 not um you, you know you think of something like miseducation of cameron post or uh oh my what is the lucas hedges uh, gay conversion camp one as well um, uh boy erased yes yes uh one of those i like far more there than the other <laughs> um but like it, it is very interesting to me that i don't think i could imagine uh something like safe that is so ultimately neutral about its own participants. Like as, as you're talking about, like, and you know, we were speaking about it a little bit earlier, but I could imagine 
a lot of movies trying to rip this off that would end with violence, for instance. Oh, yeah. Like the, uh, like the woman who's talking about uh, blowing her blowing her brains out, like right after her husband passes or right after her husband passes. And I could totally see a version of this uh, where, yeah, that person kills someone or, or something in Redwood or something like that. And I, I feel like that would very much be like a, a third act <laughs> choice of some independent films that would, would play at some festivals. Let's put that, put it that way. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I know what you're saying, because uh, you mentioned earlier, sort of in our discussions, there is no sort of catharsis or kind of art house anarchy. Yeah. And uh, so are you speaking about how the movie itself would play or more in real life or? I, I guess I'm uh, just kind of piggybacking a little bit on trying to imagine what this would look like these days. And I can't imagine it <clears throat> looking anything like it does right now. <laughs> Yeah, like, um, again, just to bring it back to wellness culture, there was this sure. podcast, The Dream, and unfortunately, I just feel like that second season, which was all about wellness culture and kind of being very critical about it, just got swallowed up because it's such a huge industry. It just feels so big of an umbrella term to really just investigate. Sure, you can go after Gwyneth Paltrow, but there's just so many other snake oil people, and it's just so established at this point. And a lot of it is built off of Louise Hay. Like, she published Susie Orman for the first time, oh, her wow. publishing house. Like, she was a mogul. She, again, she saw a market inefficiency and completely exploited it. She targeted gay men as her audience and she had a lot of people target people of color women just people who felt underserved by something as far as society so i feel like this uh sort of 2020 version of safe would probably go after goo because that is the most sure that is the hot that is that is the most well-known version but it just feels like the industry is almost so big and powerful because you almost feel like everything, everybody has been approved by Oprah on some level. Sure. And, you know, this is now sort of a country that's been sort of defined by daytime shows, commercials, infomercials, and that, it's really difficult to sort of present something that is now just a sort of new normal in a way. Yeah. And you can't really kind of close Pandora's box to get to in sort of easy sort of metaphor, but it's true. It is so big now It is so much bigger than it even was in 1995. And they are also just presenting 1987's version, 1995's version of 1987. Sure. <laughs> so it is kind of wild to try to think of this movie because it just feels like, I don't know, Carol White being obsessed with Instagram influencers. Maybe it would be a little more Ingrid Goes West. Oh, geez, you're probably right. <laughs> but it, it like it's it, it's even interesting to me to, to kind of speak 
to kind of put a, a bow on this that, you know, even this language has inflected, you know, modern psychiatry and things like this. That, that yeah. idea that, like, don't beat up yourself mm-hmm. um, is something, you know, hopefully it's wielded in a more, uh, you know, a thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or not leveraged into something else. But that a lot of these sentiments aren't just in those fringes of uh, like, uh, and you, you started to say that in terms of how large wellness culture is. But I, I think that other than, you know, kind of the, the, the boondoggles that, you know, the, not Theranos, but um, you, you know, the, the ones that kind of got, get called out for being disasters. I, I'm not sure yeah. that a lot of people would view this in the, uh, you, you know, in the same way as like a baking industry or the pharma or big pharma, for instance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it does become, it almost feels like a perfect out because it's about self. If, hmm. if, if the self, as in that person, does not just succumbs to whatever issues they have, that is on them. Because it is about the self, self-love, self-care, to borrow a more modern parlance. Sure. But, yeah, it's the sort of positive thinking in Renwood just feels like it's sort of become something that's a lot more acceptable than, say, buying a bunch of unhealthy products or products that don't exist or that only exist to make money rather. So yeah, the sort of wellness industry that's sort of built on positive thinking and affirmations has kind of has kind of mutated into something that is almost beyond recognition, but I would say at the same time the sort of remnants and sort of forefathers and foremothers of that are still around and still very powerful, still on best-selling book list, still selling out wherever they go in, as far as speaking tours and all that, you know, around a time before COVID-19 and all that. But sure. yeah, it doesn't seem that wellness culture can necessarily be taken down and and it and it again it just seems that it almost takes on more of a religious type of context a very philosophical sort of context well if if, if it doesn't work for you just leave sure it's just a disagreement <laughs> or something like that and you can kind of feel like, okay, but it's doing harm. It's like they can leave if they want to and all that. If, if, if this is making somebody sick or that they're not getting what they need, they can leave. And, yeah, it, it, that's where it kind of does sort of become this sort of ethical and moral quandary, I suppose. But yeah, it's, 
it's a fascinating movie, and I think they really Haynes really sort of nailed the kind of sort of the sort of issues that are abound when people get entangled into these and they can't and it unfortunately isn't as easy as just getting up and leave. I'm hope I'm clear on that. The sort of pressures people might feel, especially from people who are convinced that they have the right idea. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I mean, it as as is evident in this conversation, we've we've sprawled in many different directions. <laughs> Um, I, I'm trying to think, is there any kind of last uh, elements of the film that you wanted to talk about? I, I wanted to mention briefly, I, I think uh, Tomney's uh, score has, has a plays a really interesting part here. You know, it, it is very reminiscent of, you know, some of that kind of new age synth music, uh, you know, of the time, you know, the Harold Buds and the Edgar mm-hmm. Frost and, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot of luminaries in that area but i i found it uh i found it fascinating that that way it was playing in the the mid ground between kind of white noise and you know very uh paranoid nocturnal <laughs> like synth music like it's a, it's a, it, a I, i'm very surprised that he didn't seem to do a lot of other uh really monumental films <laughs> to be honest yeah, and it's it's such a and again to grab from Martin Parlance, it is such a mood. This score, <laughs> it's it it just and yeah it and I think that's why. And on rewatches, I'm like, yeah, this just feels like a, of a piece with the movie, and it just kind of nails both the kind of mundanities of her sort of everyday but also show that it kind of does it does have a foreboding quality to the fact that she does feel kind of trapped and kind of having no idea what to make of what is going on with her at all and um it's it's such a good score because I can't it does again it is kind of the perfect set in the 80s movie in that way because I can't really imagine it with any other score but those synths and it's just so perfectly encapsulating of its period yeah like if it's something like Tangerine Dream would just be like too melodic (laughs) good it's the, it's that good just before being too catchy. <laughs> yeah. And um, Kaden, we already we already spoke a little bit about this, but what what I like to do at kind of the end of the show is is there um, we've already spoke a little bit about Ackerman's work um, as well as yeah I suppose mainly Ackerman, but is there any other films? I, I mean I feel like we've kind of really hammered home how singular this film is. But is there anything that you'd recommend to listeners that, that you think uh, accomplishes at least part of what this film does? Or just trying to give uh, people somewhere else to go, whether it's a film, whether it's a novel, anything oh, like novel. that. 
Uh, Don DeLillo's White Noise as a novel is a pretty good one. And I think Haynes was very explicit about the fact that he did like that novel and it was in his mind when he was making the movie. So I definitely recommend that. I think DeLillo, especially as kind of a sort of post-World War II American fiction titan, I think he kind of does have the sort of same qualities of Haynes on a page in that he is fascinated by eras and periods and that there's just a kind of clinical quality, but something that I kind of like in that because he does really like sort of probing periods, periods and sort of a lot of the times being a demystification of a lot of time periods as well, which I think mm-hmm. Haynes is especially good at. As far as films for safe, um, Antonioni's Red Desert comes up quite a lot. Sure. <clears throat> but I actually don't think Haynes actually saw that prior, but that was a movie while in projection he was told was very similar. And I have to say it definitely is. It is an absolutely stunningly color movie by Antonioni with Monica Vitti and who Monica Vitti and she is also quite good in that and again I think people like to think that there is something a little blank about her performance but I think there is a lot of texture there might not be quite to the degree of Julianne Moore in safe but again who is uh, <laughs> but but those are kind of the works that that I can think of. Were there any works that you thought of at all? I, I mentioned Belle de Jour uh, a little bit earlier, but I, I think even that falls into the conventions of, uh, I, I would say that film very much foregrounds that repression to the point where she finds, you know, uh, an enervation in, you know, um, sex and, and more, um, a more hedonistic lifestyle. So even that doesn't feel that comparable. I, again, I, I think you've kind of got at that. This is such a, I, I really like what you were saying about this, uh, about the pared down biography and, and the sense that her history almost doesn't seem to exist. Uh, and, and I think that's a, a really key thing that I, uh, I can't think of many filmmakers who who really get that across. And I'm sure I'm going to think of something immediately after we finish recording. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I recognize it's a very broad question, but you know, I mean, there are a lot of novels that are actually really kind of great as far as also doing a similar sort of pared down kind of biography where you're just like, what is going on in this book? What is going on with this character? I'm only given so much information. What is going on? But I can't. But DeLillo just feels like a natural kind of sort of forefather to Haynes, in my opinion, like. Novel, even just something like Great Jones Street, I just feel like is something that Haynes would knock out of the park in an adaptation or something to that effect. But yeah, as far as films, I feel I can't really think of one. And um, maybe I, I can make. OK, here's one. Here's one. Uh, John Frankenheimer's Seconds, although okay. that does that does still feel a little more. Nat- 
a little more plainly presented as far as dissatisfied man in the suburbs type of story. But I feel, but I feel like that kind of feeling of dissatisfaction as far as sort of the American male who then wants to be the, the American male archetype. And that actually isn't quite an enjoyable experience for the lead character in that. I think you can kind of make connections there. And I think, um, I think Cronenberg finds a certain nuance in that blankness at, at times, especially like late works like oh Cosmopolis is actually Delillo, isn't it? Yeah, I was also thinking of that about as far as Delillo. Maps to the Stars. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Maps to the Stars is actually a Bruce Wagner screenplay, but Cosmopolis oh, that's, is. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. But Cosmopolis is. You can kind of also maybe make it about safe in a way, and. Um, I definitely think as far as wanting a type of feel, having any kind of feeling and how the sort of finding a feeling can feel elusive, the very act of feeling feels like an elusive kind of issue for Robert Pattinson's character. Yeah, I definitely think you can make connections there as well. No, I I think that's a, that's a good start. Um, and, uh, before we go, where where can we find you these days, Kaden? On Twitter, too much. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to work on that, but um, you know, due to this pandemic, work is drying up. But I sh- do have a couple of things coming up soon that I'm happy about. But I am, but those are works in progress that I don't want to jinx. As far as as far as uh, they're published before they're publishing. So you can find me on Twitter at Cinema Trans. Uh, that is Cinema and Trans. Yes, those go together. And uh, you can hear my thoughts about random movies right now because all of us are stuck at home and some of us are just going back to the classics and sometimes I'm just going to be rewatching Safe or Inherent Vice. But I, believe me, I do know two other movies besides those. <laughs> are, are you a person who do you want comforting things? I was talking to uh, Farhan uh, Neem about this recently and because uh, I was telling her that I was going to watch Safe. And she was like, I would not recommend that during the quarantine. And, and she was telling me, you know, at, there's Rita Hayworth's uh, musicals available on Criterion right now. And, and I was like, well, you know, at this point I, I figure I can just watch anything. <laughs> I'm just kind of numb to the most emotional, ex- the most extreme emotional experience at this point. <laughs> yeah. I've been, um, I've been watching stuff on TCM when I can. And, um, and some days they have an absolute sort of clinic as far as what, as far as all great movies in a row. And some days those, there are just films that aren't my speed. So actually working on rewatching seconds and other works by John Frankenheimer for something that is just going to be a fun thing. I'm not writing for it or anything. It's just going to be something 
that I and somebody else will be talking about on social media in the near future. So do watch Seconds and um, definitely recommend watching Frankenheimer's other work, be it The Manchurian Candidate, The Iceman, the Iceman Cometh. Even I would definitely also recommend seeking out his TV works, uh, which are uh, Frankenheimer as well, right? Yep. uh, The Train is one of his works, um, but he was actually one of the most prominent directors on Playhouse 90. Again, the OG golden age of television and a lot of stuff. There is a lot of experimental stuff that we take for granted now, but we're absolutely boundary pushing at the time and form formally very experimental. And I feel like he doesn't get the respect he deserves for that Hmm. because unfortunately with people are obsessed with the term auteurs as far as television (laughs) showrunners, but it's always writers. And the thing is great TV directors always graduated to movies, whether it's Frankenheimer or Sam Peckinpah. But I would say that Frankenheimer definitely has a case as far as being a very foundational figure in television. So that's going to be fun to discuss because I do think uh, Seconds is definitely his best film, but there is a lot of good stuff by him out there. Okay. Yeah, no, Frankenheimer is only someone I'm vaguely... uh, familiar with I, i've seen the original manchurian candidate and really like that one and and i'll also stand for dem dem's manchurian candidate as well but um he also uh, did the french connection sequel that is actually really underrated in my opinion i don't think i knew there was a french connection sequel there uh, is see it look at it as it look as it look at the french connection too more as an alcoholic movie rather than <laughs> remotely trying to live up to that. And it becomes a much more entertaining picture. Hmm. I'll have to check that out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter these days at my name, Matt Snydell. Uh, I have been, I don't know. I'm trying to get back into letterbox. I'm trying to get back into reviewing. I did actually review Andrew Ons uh, driveways, which, uh, uh, it's probably one of my early favorites of the year. It's a great uh, drama with Hong Chow, uh, Brian Dennehy, and uh, yeah, uh, Hong Chow and Brian Dennehy. And I can't recommend that one enough. It's on VOD, and I reviewed that at the Spool. And uh, our next um, regular film stage show episode, this is going to get so confusing when I explain this, um, is The Virgin Suicides with uh, guest Jordan Searles. So that will be the next time you hear my voice. Uh, we are brought <laughs> to you by a movie, uh, the the streaming cinema. Um, again, you can get in a trial offer by going to movie.com slash filmstage. And uh, thank you again for listening to the second episode of Intermission. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.